2: Calling all New Yorkers. Concrete jungle where podcast dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't listen to or something. Anyway, the Intelligent Speech Conference.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. them.
2: is taking place in New York, in a location which I can't remember the name of, but which you can go and find out more about by going to intelligencespeechconference.com. Why would you do that? Well, if you are interested in podcasting, if you are a listener to Mike Duncan's History of Rome, or Revolutions, or David Crowther's History of England, or Kevin Stroud's History of English, then you should be very excited, because those three fellows will be live and in person at that event. There'll be lectures going on, there'll be chances to meet and greet, and of course there'll be chances to socialise with all of your favourite history podcasters and listeners. It's a great place to bond with people that you've been listening to for a long time, and it gives us a great chance to meet you in person and say thanks for listening, thanks for supporting, and hey, how are you doing? Let's go for a pint. Unfortunately, I won't be there, but several people who I am very fond of will be. Several people in the Agora Podcast Network will be there too. This is an Agora Podcast event primarily, and we're very excited about it. So if you'd like to find out more, you know where to go by now, intelligencespeechconference.com or click on the link in the description below and use the code WDF to get 5% off your ticket. The ticket will set you up for the all-day-long conference, so make sure you sort yourselves out in time and tell your friends that these wonderful podcasters ...are going to be there live. If this goes well enough... ...I'm sure we'll be doing more in the future... ...and I'm sure I'll have the chance to show up then... ...but as it happens... ...I'm simply too busy at the moment... ...to bring myself to go to New York... ...although I really did enjoy going to Boston... ...and meeting some lovely history friends in person there. Still quite surreal... ...can't believe that I did it... ...but I did... ...and one of the reasons I was able to do that is because this podcast is my job... ...and this podcast is my job... ...because you guys support it so well... ...on Patreon. For $5 a month... You could get an hour of extra content every single month, which currently is the Suez Crisis, but in the past has been series as broad as Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, a Jan Sobieski biography series, and an examination of what happened when Stalin died and the Soviet Union tried to be liberal, but also still be communist at the same time. Not exactly the easiest thing to do. In the future, we're doing something really exciting called Poland is not yet lost, which is a completely original series that examines the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century. Which, of course, means that we have to examine the 18th century as well. And the 18th century, the 1700s are a really interesting period for us, because a whole load of wars happen, and this time we'll be looking at those wars from the perspective of the Poles, something we've never done before, and something I'm really looking forward to doing. It's a really fascinating story, guys, and if you'd like to find out more about it, well, you could just ask me but you could also go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or yes, click on the link in the description below. That's it guys, enjoy this episode where we look not at Poland, but at Russia. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 71. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 71 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the last episode, we examined the period of the 20th to 24th of May, wherein we noted that the Germans remained atop the list of concerns for the Allies. This trend would continue in the remainder of May to be accompanied by two additional concerns the peace arrangements with Austria, and the difficulties presented by the Italians. Vanishingly little time, as it happened, was spent on deciding what to do about the only place in the world where Allied soldiers had a considerable and active presence, that being in Russia. That was because it was so easy to forget that these troops were even in Russia in the first place. There had not been an effective delivery service of Russian bulletins for some time, instead there had been a succession of of failed efforts to solve the Russian problem, including the Prinkipo Conference, the ill-fated bullet mission to Russia, among them. By April, the Allies had essentially placed Russia in the back of their minds, but by late May, certain developments were coming to their attention which necessitated at least some further consideration of the Russian situation. These developments revolved around the progress which the White Admiral Alexander Kolchak and the White General Anton Denikin seemed to be making at the expense of the Bolsheviks. Kolchak, based in Siberia, and Denikin, based around the southern region of Russia to the west of Crimea, had achieved considerable successes and pushed the Bolsheviks back in the course of their advances. The question for the Allies, thus, was how to complement these manoeuvres. At no point did the Allies reckon with the possibility that the Russian civil war was none of their business. It would have been pointless to float the policy of complete non-intervention anyway, owing to the pre-existing presence of several thousand of Allied soldiers in the various Russian fronts. Bolshevik revolution in Hungary and Bavaria, and some attempts to launch one in Berlin, meant that the threat of Bolshevism remained palpable, even though Bolshevism had not succeeded everywhere. It had not gone away simply because the Big Three had been distracted, but it also had come no closer to solution. It is therefore fascinating that on the 26th of May 1919, after months of relegating Russia to the edges of their consciousness, the Big Five finally concluded on the final draft of the telegram to send to Admiral Alexander Kolchak. This telegram, on the surface a knee-jerk reaction to developments in the Russian Civil War, was in fact a pivotal moment in the course of that conflict, because it represented the first occasion that the Big Five collectively recognised a faction in that conflict as the favoured faction, and therefore the official government of Russia. It shouldn't be too much of a spoiler to denote that the Bolsheviks were not the faction to be honoured with this status. In this episode, we'll examine that document, and we'll also provide some context to the Russian Civil War, which by this point, in spite of the hopeful Allied pronouncements and optimistic news reports, was in fact soon to swing determinately against the Whites, and in favour of the Reds, Without any further ado then, I'll now take you all to the afternoon of the 27th of May,
0: 1919.
2: Following several false starts, on the afternoon of Tuesday the 27th of May, 1919, as the possibility of German defiance over the treaty terms loomed large in their proceedings, the Big Three finally confirmed their response to the Russian situation. It had taken some time to reach this point, but at last, it seemed, the Allied leaders possessed a common policy towards the various Russian factions. In the appendix of an otherwise very disconnected series of discussions resides this firm statement of intent towards Russia, and considering its incredible significance, it is worth detailing here. The document had actually been devised the previous day on the 26th of May, as we've mentioned, but by the 27th, it was completely finished and ready to go, which is why it was in the appendix for the 27th, just in case you were confused about all that. In any case, the document read as follows. The Allied and Associated Powers feel that the time has come when it is necessary for them once more to make clear the policy they propose to pursue in regard to Russia. It has always been a cardinal axiom of the Allied and Associated Powers to avoid interference in the internal affairs of Russia. Their original intervention was made for the sole purpose of assisting those elements in Russia which wanted to continue the struggle against German autocracy and to free their country from German rule and in order to rescue the Czechoslovaks from the danger of annihilation at the hands of Bolshevik forces. Since the signature of the armistice on the 11th of November 1918, they have kept forces in various parts of Russia. Munitions and supplies have been sent to assist those associated with them at a very considerable cost. No sooner, however, did the peace conference assemble than they endeavoured to bring peace and order to Russia by inviting representatives of all the warring governments within Russia to meet them in the hope that they might be able to arrange a permanent solution of Russian problems. This proposal, and a later offer to relieve the distress among the suffering millions of Russia, broke down through the refusal of the Soviet government to accept the fundamental condition of suspending hostilities while negotiations, or the work of relief, was proceeding. Some of the allied and associated governments are now being pressed to withdraw their troops and to incur no further expense in Russia, on the ground that continued intervention shows no prospect of producing an early settlement. They are, however, prepared to continue their assistance on the lines laid down below, provided they are satisfied that it will really help the Russian people to liberty, self-governance and peace. The Allied and Associated Governments now wish to declare formally that the object of their policy is to restore peace within Russia by enabling the Russian people to resume control of their own affairs through the instrumentality of a freely elected Constituent Assembly and to restore peace along its frontiers by arranging for the settlement of disputes in regard to the boundaries of the Russian state and its relations, with its neighbours through the peaceful arbitration of the League of Nations. They are convinced by their experiences of the last 12 months that it is not possible to attain these ends by dealings with the Soviet government of Moscow. They are therefore disposed to assist the government of Admiral Kolchak and his associates with munitions, supplies and food to establish themselves as the government of all Russia, provided they receive from them definite guarantees that their policy has the same objects in view as that of the Allied and Associated Powers. With this object, they would ask Admiral Kolchak and his associates whether they will agree to the following, as the conditions upon which they accept continued assistance from the Allied and Associated Powers. The document then proceeded to state the numerous conditions upon which Allied support of Admiral Alexander Kolchak's regime would be based. To trace the origins of these terms and to place the actual conditions of this groundbreaking document into its proper context, It is important to examine an equally forgotten meeting of the Council of Four, which created this forgotten document. Three days before this declaration was approved and sent, on Saturday the 24th of May, its contents were debated and thoroughly examined by a packed Allied Council, consisting of British, French, American, Italian and Japanese leaders. For so long, the conflicting aims and policies of these figures meant that arriving at an agreed policy towards Russia had been incredibly difficult. This had been the reason for the ineffective previous attempts at solving the Russian question, such as the conference at Prinkipo and William Bullitt's mission to Russia during the month of March. After all this faffing around, it seemed that this Saturday meeting of the Big Five on the 24th of May, meeting under the auspices of the Council of Four, was to be the moment when a common policy was hammered out at long last. It took the form of something of a fait accompli, as the British and American leaders essentially explained the terms of the document, which they had evidently played the predominant role in creating. Lloyd George's private secretary, Philip Kerr, we are told, had actually drafted the document, while British and American concerns, above all, were front and centre within it. Woodrow Wilson shared his concerns of Kolchak setting up some kind of military dictatorship, Lloyd George revealed that British public opinion was dead set against some kind of formal military commitment to Russia and thus the wording of this military commitment called for volunteers rather than conscripted soldiers. We will look at both of these concerns in a little bit. Fortunately for the British and American leaders, Viscount Chinda, the Japanese leader, expressed the view that his government would in all likelihood be willing to accept this Anglo-American draft. Why? Well, as Chinda conveniently noted in the minutes, the Japanese had also been working on a solution to the Russian problem, and Tokyo had recently sent out a document which actually read very similarly to this one to its embassies in the major allied capitals. The gist of this dispatch, said Viscount Chinda, is as follows. Chinda then proceeded to give a very handy summary of this Japanese proposal towards the Russian situation, which had been sent in parallel and apparently without coordination to the relevant capitals. More than six months have elapsed since the provisional government under Admiral Kolchak was organised in Omsk to restore order in Siberia, Chinda's summary began. It has so far accomplished its extremely difficult task with admirable tact and determination. And the summary continued. Having regard to the general desire to see the restoration of an orderly and efficient government in Russia and believing that official recognition will materially conduce to this end, the Japanese government feels that the time has come for a provisional recognition to be accorded on condition of a promise by the Omsk government to safeguard the interests of the allied and associated powers and that it will assume responsibility for the debts and financial obligations of the former Russian government. Chinda noted that the Japanese message concluded with an instruction to bring this declaration to the notice of the governments to which the ambassadors were respectively accredited and to suggest to them that the question might conveniently be discussed among their delegates at Paris. On concluding the reading of this dispatch, Viscount Chinda remarked that the policy in the draft dispatch which the Anglo-Americans had handed to him seemed to be a step towards the policy which the Japanese government had proposed. And this, Chinda declared, was the reason for his confidence that the Japanese government would accept it. Basically, it was his way of saying that the two proposals were very similar. Nevertheless, Chinda noted that he would like to discuss the matter with his colleagues. It was all very convenient that the Japanese and Anglo-Americans just so happened to produce complimentary declarations as to their intent in Russia. We should bear in mind that a major motivating factor behind Wilson's sense of urgency to become involved in Siberia in the first place was to prevent the Japanese from having free reign there. Up to this point, in short, the interests and concerns of the Big Five hadn't exactly worked in tandem where Russia was concerned, and this is a large part of the reason why reaching any kind of consensus had taken so flaming long. It didn't take long, in spite of their declared commonality, for the Allies to debate the Declaration's contents, though. There was some confusion over one passage of the document, which had apparently called for volunteers, and placed no onus on any Allied government to commit soldiers. The phrase had been inserted to meet the case of Great Britain, Lloyd George remarked to his Japanese peer, before adding... There was a very strong feeling against sending forces to Russia, and it was necessary to give guarantees to the soldiers that they would not be sent. Nevertheless, a good many men in the British Army had volunteered to go to Russia to take part in the operations. Indeed, sufficient numbers had volunteered to supply the Archangel force. That was the reason for this provision. Chinda noted that this idea posed a problem, though, because there was no facility in the Japanese state for sending volunteers anywhere. Either they were regular soldiers, or they did not exist. Furthermore, Woodrow Wilson piped up and noted, as he had understood the disputed passage, it allowed for the withdrawal of American soldiers from Archangel, another front of the Russian Civil War, where the Whites were holding on. Though the city of Omsk at Siberia was the declared main event, and that was where Kolchak held his base. Lloyd George rushed to clarify the matter, noting that it would be difficult indeed to remove Allied forces from Archangel, as these men were mostly volunteers, and they were involved with the technical and engineering aspects of military affairs. To remove them would require a long process, and it would effectively cripple white forces in the region in any case. As a compromise, Lloyd George actually agreed to admit from this draft any reference to volunteers, as Clemenceau suggested that any reference to the precise costs already expended by the Allies, also be removed in case of outrage at home. So this was agreed to, and Lloyd George signalled that the final draft of the document would not be sent to Russia until Viscount Chinda approved of it. Hence, it wasn't until three days later that this final draft, recorded in the appendix of the Council of Four on the 27th of May, was in fact sent off. Lloyd George, to conclude on the matter, outlined the three major concerns which were shortly to be addressed. If Kolchak signalled his acceptance of the Allied terms, which we will examine in a bit, then these three questions would become more urgent. They were, first, whether the Allied and associated powers should confine themselves to rendering Kolchak assistance. Second, whether the Allies should recognise the Omsk government as the government for the area occupied by Kolchak's troops. Third and finally, and most importantly, the question of whether the OMS government should be recognised as representing the whole of Russia. Successful resolution of these questions depended on what Kolchak would say. If the grizzled Russian admiral agreed to the terms, then it was hinted that the Big Three would recognise Kolchak as the de jure leader of Russia. But now we come to the critical question. What were these terms which Kolchak would have to fulfil before the Allies would recognise him as the leader of anti-Bolshevik forces, and as the foremost representative of Russia's government. Well, let's investigate. To begin with, Wilson's fears regarding the possibility that Kolchak might establish an even worse form of military government than that engineered by the Bolsheviks was addressed. In the first of seven terms expressed in the final draft of the document concluded on the 26th and sent off that evening, it was declared that... As soon as they... Kolchak's forces reach Moscow, they will summon a constituent assembly elected by a free, secret, and democratic franchise as the supreme legislature for Russia, to which the government of Russia must be responsible. Or, if at that time order is not sufficiently restored, they will summon the constituent assembly elected in 1917 to sit until such time as new elections are possible. This statement of intent for the establishment of a democratic Russian government was hammered home in the second point. Which declared that, throughout the areas which they at present control, they will permit free elections in the normal course for all local and legally constituted assemblies. This captured Wilson's fears, but a fear which gripped the big three collectively was that Kolchak might work to implement the blatantly unpopular land system of old, which so disadvantaged the peasantry and provided such fertile ground for the Bolshevik message. As the third point noted, the Allies, wish to be assured that those whom they are prepared to assist stand for the civil and religious liberty of all Russian citizens and will make no attempt to reintroduce the regime which the revolution has destroyed. Kolchak, in other words, must promise not to try and turn back the clock to a time before the revolution, otherwise the Allies would be trapped supporting the demands of dispossessed landlords, a position which was believed intolerable for the Allied public image. The fourth term insisted upon independence for Finland and Poland, but interestingly, the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, in addition to the Caucasian lands, were to be only autonomous for the moment, pending further agreement between both parties. A settlement in direction of these questions would be the responsibility of the League of Nations in the near future. These terms, while they might be surprising to us, reflected Wilson's preconceived notions regarding Baltic independence. We've seen before that he was hesitant to apply his self-determination ideals to those Baltic states. This could be explained by several factors, including the region's instability as Baltic nationalists, Bolsheviks and Freikorps forces swept across it. But it could also be explained by the American president's lack of understanding of national identity in the region, and of his vision for a strong Russia, which included federations of smaller states under the protection of Moscow. Point 6 compelled Kolchak to submit the Bessarabia question, which affected Romania and Russia in equal measure, up to the arbitration of the League of Nations. Speaking of the League, Point 7 moved Kolchak to bring Russia into the League as soon as possible, wherein Russia would cooperate with the other members in the limitation of armaments and of military organisation throughout the world. Eighth, and finally, Kolchak was required to reaffirm his earlier commitment to pay the debts to the Allies, which the Russian government owed, and which the Bolsheviks evidently had no intention of paying. This final term pleased all the Allies who had lent Moscow money during the war, which was a long list of people, but especially the French at the top of the list, who had lent the most and who needed the money back for rebuilding purposes and also for repaying the Americans. Clemenceau was understandably keen that this final term should be adhered to, and he anticipated that Kolchak was the best hope for France if she was to settle her debts. At its core then, the document which the Allies sent to Kolchak on the 27th of May 1919 was an offer. In return for certain guarantees, the Allied leaders would consent to recognise Kolchak as the de jour head of the Russian government. This was predicated on the assumption, of course, that Kolchak would win the Russian Civil War and that Lenin's Bolsheviks would shortly lose. Since we know that the USSR was a thing until 1991, we know that Kolchak lost, so the question remains one of how the Allies got it so wrong. George Kennan, writing in 1960 for the American Scholar, placed this infamous Allied faux pas in perspective. As Kennan explained, a huge problem for the Allies by late May was that they were receiving information about the situation on the ground in Russia from people who were most likely to be, let's just say, economical with the truth. Kennan wrote, By the time this discussion took place, Kolchak was not only again on the defensive, but he had begun the retreat which was to lead within the year to his political, personal destruction. The reason why the statesmen in Paris did not know this was that they were making the same mistake Americans were destined to make 40 years later in the Chinese Civil War. They were drawing their information exclusively from the side that they wanted to see win. The Allies had no observers at this point on the Bolshevik side. They had had observers there some months earlier, but these had been lightheartedly sacrificed to the interests of the intervention itself. Allied governments were now paying the penalty for this sacrifice in the form of very poor and unreliable information conditions. It was a heavy price. Indeed, Kolchak had nothing to lose and everything to gain by conforming to Allied requests. What the Allies realised much too late was that the time for action had passed. Kolchak's powers and triumph had peaked weeks before. Due to their dithering, the Allies could no longer have a significant impact on the course of the Russian Civil War, ...unless they invested significant contributions, the likes of which they were patently unwilling to invest. We should also note that Wilson had long been suspicious as to the situation in Russia. During the debate on the 24th of May, where the draft statement was created... ...the President signalled that he hoped his man on the ground in Siberia... ...that being the American ambassador to Japan, Roland Morris, would be able to present his report before Allied policy was set in stone. Alas, though, Morris's report arrived too late. Kennan thus delivered a biting judgment of the note which was sent to Kolchak in the evening of the 26th of May, writing This note represented, of course, an empty gesture. Paper promises were a dime a dozen during the Russian Civil War. The issuance of the desired assurances cost Kolchak precisely nothing. The reply, actually, was largely drafted for him by the British and French representatives at his headquarters, who thought they knew what President Wilson wanted to hear. Very soon after this reply was received in Paris, the decline of Kolchak's fortunes became too obvious to be longer ignored. Wilson, who had never been convinced that things were as they had been represented to him, sent his own representative to Siberia to find out the true facts. This representative, the American ambassador to Japan, Mr. Roland Morris, reported that without direct reinforcement by an Allied contingent of at least 50,000 men, Kolchak could not properly maintain himself, and that further shipments of supplies and munitions would simply be wasted. This killed the whole project, so far as the United States government was concerned. Kolchak proceeded rapidly to his early and tragic demise. With the Allied spotlight, at the very least, focused upon them, and with all the force of Allied goodwill certainly set against the Bolsheviks, a fair question might be how the likes of Kolchak, Denikin, and others failed to capitalize upon the situation and win their civil war. The answer to this lies in the fact that neither Kolchak nor Denikin nor any other white Russian leader possessed the advantage to begin with, and for the defeat of the Bolsheviks to be actually possible, A full military and material commitment of the Allied powers towards the Whites was essential. It was precisely because the Big Three didn't or couldn't give this commitment that the Russian policy took so long to take shape. Supremely powerful factions do not send fact-finding missions or set-up conferences. They answer the question by destroying their enemies. That Kolchak and Denikin could not achieve this end and that at the peak of their powers lasted only a fleeting few months should tell us all we need to know. This is confirmed by Margaret Macmillan, who noted the following on the strategic situation in the Russian Civil War, saying, The Bolsheviks possessed two crucial advantages, their unity and their location. They controlled the centre of Russia, while their heterogeneous opponents were widely dispersed around the periphery. Each of the white Russian commanders, mutually suspicious and separated from each other by miles of often hostile territory, frequently had no idea what the other was doing. The Bolsheviks had three times the manpower, and most of Russia's arms factories. The Allies decided to extend partial recognition to Kolchak's government. The moment chosen, wrote Churchill later, was almost exactly the moment when that declaration was almost certainly too late. Too late, indeed, for Bolsheviks overwhelmed Kolchak's front line, and poured through his defences by late June, signalling that the end of the Russian Civil War was in sight. Still, it took typically too long for the Allies to react to these events, not until January 1921, were the final vestiges of Allied intervention in Russia brought to an agreed end. What is remarkable is that only three months later, in March 1921, Britain formalised a trade agreement with the Bolsheviks. One is struck by the dramatic swings in opinion in favour of this policy, where before any suggestion of negotiation with the Reds was attacked with volcanic intensity, particularly from the right. The conservative businessmen, who believed that they were disadvantaged so long as Russia remained untapped, came to realise that it did not matter too much to them, really, who ruled in Russia, so long as the money and business interests were maintained. By 1924, Britain and France extended full diplomatic relations to Bolshevik Russia. By that point, Admiral Kolchak's corpse was ice cold. He had been betrayed and handed over to the Bolsheviks in February 1920, and he was executed shortly thereafter. For some time it was hoped in the West that the Bolsheviks, while certainly radical and extreme, could not maintain their hardline elements forever and might even become more moderate with the withdrawal of allied forces from the country. There was an idea that the only reason they were so radical was because the Reds were trying to win their civil war, And present themselves as something different this prediction was to prove tragically false the new regime which lenin created and stalin consolidated was unlike anything the world had ever seen it was birthed in the embers of the first world war but it would soon carry russia and much of europe into additional conflicts hot and cold as its rulers presided over the atrocitarian system which sent millions deliberately to their deaths hounded and arrested millions more and killed still more millions through their stupid, short-sighted, unsuitable agricultural and industrial policies. The world still lives with the shadow of the Russian Civil War hanging over it, since it still lives with the shadow of the Cold War hanging over it. It was a shadow which the Big Three, through their ignorance and errors, played no small role in helping to inflate, as George Kennan concluded. What do we see when we look back from this standpoint, this series of episodes in the Record of the Peace Conference? We see, first of all, the shocking lack of any unity or intimacy among the various Allied governments. They had reconciled their various views on what the world was supposed to be like after victory over the Germans. They had been fighting different things, and pretending, in an endless flow of beautiful phrases, that what they were fighting for was the same thing. Their confrontation with the Russian problem tore the mask, off this equivocation and hypocrisy. What is both remarkable and tragic about these Russian deliberations over the 24th to 27th of May was the fact that even with their long-debated decision to offer conditional recognition to Kolchak, little else followed from this act other than the temporary, ultimately worthless bolstering of Kolchak's regime. The Allies sent no more troops, no greater intensity in the supply of materials would arrive, and no great breakthrough was facilitated. The Big Three thus treated Russia as consistently as ever. They made loud use of empty gestures before pushing the Russian situation to the backs of their minds, where it had always really resided. Not even the Treaty of Versailles properly dealt with the Russian situation, and the future of that foggy country would remain forever unsettled according to that treaty. Just as the war had made the Russian Civil War possible, the peace treaty would avoid solving the dilemma. Indeed, the Big Three had bigger fish to fry in their minds than the solution of the Russian situation. By the 27th of May 1919, Germany was surely due to present its answer to the treaty terms. Furthermore, as the minutes of the 26th of May demonstrate, Italy continued to pose a unique problem for Allied unity. Their priorities were clear. As far as the Big Three were concerned, They had done all they could with Russia, and now it was time to move on.